first question is to Pastor John and Pastor Mark. Uh, it's a very perceptive question. Uh, Piper says, get rid of my TV, and Driscoll says, buy extra DVRs. How do you reconcile this difference? Get your sources right. <laughs> I never said that in my life. That's a question. All right. Oh, there's, there there's, there's probably something else. Go ahead, say something significant. I think it is. You don't have a TV, correct? That's correct. Okay, I think that's probably where they got it. But you would I'm sure that's where they got it. Yeah, okay. But you wouldn't say that they shouldn't have a TV. You just choose no. not to have one. Right. I'm just an addict, and I know my limits. Okay, well, that's good. There you go. Great. There's three sections this afternoon. There's advance the church section. There's a repentance section. Uh, the uh, idolatry was really received well. And then finally, there were a lot of questions uh, that implied need for prayer. And so we thought we'd close with prayer this afternoon. So we'll start with Advance the Church. And, and the first question to any of the panelists is, how do we, who do not agree on everything, come together for the progress of the gospel despite our theological differences? That's, I, I think one of the things that, that I'm both passionate about and cautious about is because missions, which and mission, but missions in general, has historically been the pathway for theological compromise. I know that sounds strange, but in 1910, the Christians of the world, what we'd call evangelicals today, they were mainlines now, now, but they gathered together and said the evangelization of the world in this generation, and they assumed what they could, that everyone believed the same thing, we're all in this together, we just love Jesus, let's reach the world for him. But they failed to put down some markers about what they believed that could define where they would go in the future. And so in 1910, by the time they got to 1928, had a subsequent meeting. They were questioning uh, the scriptures and the purpose of evangelism. By the time they got to later on, they, they walked away from the proclamation of the gospel as, and, and really the teaching of the cross, that Jesus died on the cross for our sin in our place. But so, so I think cooperation is both dangerous but incredibly important. And so I think it, a couple things are required. One is a sense that there need to be theological boundaries about, around cooperation depending upon the kind of cooperation. If we're planting churches together, that requires a higher level of theological agreement than if we're praying together. It, it requires a, a much higher level of theological agreement than if we're, we're working against social ills together. And so I think there are levels of cooperation that are both possible and, and really per permissible and encouraged based upon what you're cooperating around. Sometimes we're just co-belligerents with people. We're not allies with them. But I think at the same time, it, it requires a sense of what I call candid cooperation. I can work together with Pentecostals and Presbyterians, even though I differ with Pentecostals and Presbyterians, as long as I'm not asked to compromise what I believe the Bible teaches about, uh, about the perseverance of the saints or what I believe the Bible teaches about, about uh, believers' baptism. And so it's being able to say we can work together, we can pray together, we can even train together, but there are some things we can't do together, not because we're being divisive, but because we've come to firmly held theological beliefs on some issues that do end up putting us in perhaps in some different directions. So I think it's incredibly important to find ways, but not to do so naively, because the end result is, well, if baptism doesn't matter, what doesn't matter next? Does the authority of Scripture not matter? Does the Imago Dei and gender not matter? And soon, nothing matters, and that cooperation becomes the doorway to compromise. So I think it's with some markers and with some candid uh, cooperation, I think, is the key. You use the word markers twice, and most of the examples you used were theologically based. Are those the only markers, or should there be common goals and objectives as markers as well? 
Well, yeah, I think the question is what, what, are we, what are we endeavoring to do together? If we're endeavoring to end poverty together, the markers are not as precise. If we're endeavoring to plant a congregation, I can, I can plant a congregation, you know, up until the point when the first baptism is, and we don't know if we need to get a cup or a tub. At some point, you have to make some decisions along the way and knowing that ahead of time. So, so yeah, the marker is going to be determined by the level and the intent of the cooperation. And on church planting, that is often in theological education are sometimes the most specific levels that require a very high level of theological commonality. There's been a lot of talk about the demise of the church, the decline of the church, and this question stems from that. What, if ever, is the demise of a local church a good thing uh, or necessary, or when do you let a dying church die? I mean, you go, you go. Wait, no, you, I, you go on, I'll think of something else. All right, that's good. Uh, thank you, J.D. <laughs> I mean, as you read Revelation, Jesus is talking about literally turning the lights off in certain churches. Some would say, oh, churches are dying, that's terrible. Well, it depends on which church it was. There are some that, you know, he says they're synagogues of Satan, and, you know, if they run their expiration date, that's positive. Um, you know, if a church has false doctrine, I'll give you an example in, uh, in my city. Went into a church that had completely declined, was basically almost dead. A handful of older people were looking at giving the building away. And on the wall, there was a photo that had been taken a number of years earlier. And at that time, in front of the church, there was literally a few hundred small children that comprised the congregation. And they should have still been alive, and they stood have, should have still been in the church. And so I asked the handful of godly older women who remained and were sort of caretaking after this building, what happened to all those kids? Um, and she pointed to one man in the photo, and she said, that was the pastor. She pointed to the other man and said, and that was his brother who molested those children. And now they don't go here, and the church is dead. That's good. Because if a pedophile is hurting children, and the church is the cover, then God should shut that church down. If the pastor is disqualified, and they won't get rid of him because he's become the idol or the highest authority above Jesus, then it's good if that church shuts down. If that church is preaching a false gospel and leading people astray, then it's good if that church shuts down. So I don't view all of the statistics of dead and declining churches as necessarily bad things. I want to see those resources used for kingdom purposes, but sometimes to fight the closing of a church is to fight the will of God. Yeah, our church right now is in, um, I'm going to come at it from a different angle, is in the midst of just asking some questions about the kinds of things we'll build, the kinds of property that we'll have. And by no means do I think that, you know, it's wrong to own property. We do, and, and we want to, to do that. But I think there is a question of how, you know, we really think of, like, trying to establish a church that necessarily that institution will perceive, you know, forever, or proceed forever. I think that there are, are times that God raises up a congregation for a particular time, and, you know, the idealist in me wants to say that it can just change with every generation, but I think there's a natural, there's a natural movement. And uh, I know I may be taking this slightly out of context, but, you know, the whole idea that new wine is in new wineskins, that there are times that there just needs to be new churches that are planted, and it would be helpful if we, you know, hadn't poured all of our money to build a bunch of buildings for a God who says he dwells in temples not made with hands anyway, um, that we were, you know, that, that the church was seen more as a body that, um, that, that it wasn't just tied to, to property. Next question is uh, continuing in the advanced category, and it says, are we on the brink of a revival in the American church today? Why or why not? 
That's a John Piper question. I have no idea. Um, God is totally free and totally sovereign. I would like to think so. I pray for it. I get up and look out my study window at home to the city of downtown Minneapolis, and I think of the tens of thousands of people in those buildings, and I think what could be more glorious than if, if Jesus became the issue in this city to such an extent that, that sin were felt to be sin and, and the dishonoring of the Lord were recognized and tens of thousands of people repented and went to church and everything changed, that would be glorious. But um, I, I'm just not into predictions and and if I saw outcroppings, which I do, of blessing all over, that would, to me, signify no sure future because I want to believe that in the absolutely worst of all times, it could come in a moment because he's God. He can raise the dead. So I think the most practical way to address that question would not to be uh, predict with success whether it is, but rather let's pray like crazy that, that the Lord would sweep through churches and, and lands and, and cities in ways we never dreamed he could. Prayer is definitely the starting point. Are, are there other things that, that we can do as pastors and leaders in the church to, to help a revival, or is this not something that we can force and push God into? Well, I think you can set the sail. You can't make the wind blow. But through repentance, humility, sound doctrine, qualified church leadership, you know, setting forth holiness by exercising church discipline and instruction and correction, you can do some things to get the sail up. Now, it doesn't mean the wind will blow, but if the sail's not up and the wind blows, I'm not sure it's gonna be that effective anyways. I mean, there's a lot of churches right now that even if tens of thousands of people got saved and walked into those churches, they wouldn't have godly leaders, they wouldn't be getting a lot of sound doctrine, and it wouldn't be the best follow-up and effectiveness for those new Christians. Tyler, I. I myself have been very encouraged with this conference at the common theme that has run through almost every talk is the call for repentance. And uh, from my limited knowledge of church history, I know that when God has moved, it hasn't been because somebody came online with a new program. Um, it hasn't been because there's been a new rock star, Christian rock star that swept the country. And those things just flash. But there's been a deep-seated call for repentance. And, and I have myself been moved in some of the talks to just repent of, of my own idolatry, and you, and you wonder if that is not the beginnings or the knockings of God's Spirit trying to begin something, at least in us. Yeah, it, would, it would certainly be out of character for how God has moved in the past. Can, can I say one more thing? We can preach Christ. Preaching Christ is as important as praying because what the Holy Spirit is sent to do is to glorify Jesus. He will send the comforter, and when he comes, he will glorify me. Well, if Christ is not known, the Holy Spirit doesn't make up for that. He's not a preacher. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak like that. He, he opens eyes to see what we preach. And so if we're not preaching truth, he'll keep his mouth shut. He, he won't exercise his, his sovereign work in the absence of Jesus preached. He does, he's not at work in unreached peoples right now to save sinners. He, he goes where the gospel goes. They're like tandem jets just flying like this. And if the, if the jet carrying the gospel goes off like this, the Holy Spirit's going to land. It's not going to move. So preach Christ. Get the truth right. He, he is a spirit of truth. So we don't miss the depth of what we've just said. Pray, repent, 
proclaim Jesus. I mean, I think every revival that I've studied, that, those have been the three main, main tenets. I think that's, that's amazing. Last question in this section. Um, what is the best way for a new church plant to incorporate a passion for missions from the very beginning of that church? I think allocating resources um, sacrificially from the beginning, a set amount, and publicly um, let the congregation know um, that that's happening. One of the things that we, we see about 10 to 20 um, college students probably a year going on mission trips, short-term mission trips, knowledgeable trips, and out of that, some are wanting to go on foreign um, missions, missions for good in pioneering areas. A guy want to go in southern France, right, um, 100 miles off the coast of Algeria, real passionate about that. Um, another person wants to go to another part of France. Another group want to go to India, husband and wife. And so um, I think the biggest thing is not thinking that you're going to get to a point where you actually allocate funds, but you look in the beginning as a part of your budget plan um, in your church planting packet or whether it's a revitalization packet that you have allocated as a line item that's known to everybody that you're giving to missions. And as it gets done, don't let it just be a line item, but actually let people know that it's actually being allocated to that through whether it's video or having them come up and do testimonies. Before we move on, it's easy to look at some of these men who have very large churches and say, well, you have an established budget. But Eric, you've planted a church recently, and I think you said today the average income was fifteen to $22,000. In the community. In the community, yeah. So you're not pulling in tons of money as a church. What does that mean for you practically if you say it's a line item in your budget? I think one of the things that God has blessed us to be is not just a community church, but a regional church and to do some things globally. So I think for us, before we even launch, even we were doing launch team development, a part of our vision casting for the ministry was letting people know our local, national, and international strategic vision for how we were going to proclaim the gospel in specific ways, especially through indigenous leadership development and church planting. And so I think that lacing it in the DNA of the people so it doesn't come out of anywhere, but we continue to announce it in every phase of the church plant. You know, I, I'm passionate about this, you know, having planted churches that they're involved in global mission and much of the missional conversation, which if we, if we define it kind of as most do, is to joining God on his mission. If we do not see that as a global mission with a, with a nation's focus, a, a people's focus, we've really not read the scriptures well. And I think it's odd, you know, Stephen Neal once said, when everything is mission, nothing is mission. And I think a lot of people are talking about being on mission and, and being missional, but I think you've got to have a burning heart for God's work among the nations, among the peoples, among men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation. As I mentioned earlier, I just returned from bringing primarily church planners, innovative church leaders to, uh, to, to Italy and France. We're doing this again in this fall in Taiwan and back to London and Paris next spring uh, through the Upstream Collective to help churches that are church plants and non-traditional churches to engage in God's global mission. There's no reason that we can't. Now, we probably can't do it alone. Every church can't do it alone. That's why we cooperate together. That's why there are mission agencies and denominations and mission boards. I work for one, the International Mission Board, part of my time. And so I think finding those means to cooperate, because we can do more together than we can do apart, enables every church to say that they're a part of it. Let me give one quick thing, then I'll be quiet. Uh, I was in Mississippi once speaking at a church of my denomination, but I drove by this Pentecostal church. It was a little, sat 20 people in the pews, with little brick building, little white columns, two just little columns, but they had this huge 10-foot lit sign with big bold letters, and it said, Pentecostal World Outreach Center. And I just love that. I, if I had a camera, I would have taken a picture, because they're right. 
And every church, the church has given the Great Commission, every church needs to be a world outreach center. And I, I encourage earlier, missional churches should be involved in serving their communities, planting nationally, and engaging unreached people groups globally. That's joining God in His global mission. That's great. We're going to move on to the repentance area. We have about 11 minutes left, so it needs to be a little bit rapid fire. Uh, almost every speaker here has spoken about repentance, but there's no prompting from the conference for you to do that. And so I think it's the, the Lord moving. The, the first question comes from, from a pastor or leader in the church. Should I repent to my congregation for an idolatry that has neg negatively impacted them as I now see it's hindering our ministry? Yeah, I think uh, your, your repentance has to begin with you and Christ. It has to include your wife and your children, and then you go to your elders. And uh, you submit to the spiritual authority that God has placed over you. And uh, the Bible says that certain <clears throat> sins rise to the level of a removal. A man's disqualified. Others rise to the level of a rebuke. Um, and, uh, and I think that's the, the thing that often happens is that pastors don't have pastors. And so not knowing what the situation is, I would say talk to Jesus, your wife, your family, your elders, and then see what recommendation they give for whatever the issue might be. Anybody else? A similar question. Um, what ways do you counsel a young pastor to overcome their fear of man? Uh, grow like crazy in your fear of God. Um, be terrified about God and His disapproval, or to put it positively, uh, fall in love with the supremacy of God and the sovereignty of God. If God is for us, these guys already know the answer. So uh, just li live the answer. Get, get to know the God. If, if, if one is for you and He's infinite, it doesn't really matter who else. So that really is the key. Get the, get the cross right that your righteousness doesn't hang on their approval, it hangs on Christ's righteousness. And once you're set with Christ by His imputed righteousness and your sins covered, and God is for you, nobody can successfully be against you, even if you're being killed all day long, which is what Romans 8 says happens to those against whom nobody can be. We are being killed all day long. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So get, memorize Romans 8, especially verses 26 to the end of the, of the chapter. Really, that, that, if you memorize Romans 8, uh, let's start 28, 28 to 37, and uh, make it part of your own fabric. I think God will lift you above the fear of man. A conference like this is a bit strange because some of you, these folks, podcast and listen to and They've learned a tremendous amount, and then they're here with you. Uh, and so that, this question stems from that. How do we learn from the godly men who go before us without making those men idols? Well, goodness gracious, <laughs> wake up to how unbelievably sinful uh, I am, Mark is, or if I'm in that group, uh, uh, talk to my wife. Uh, um, just call up the staff. Your, your bubble will be popped in a hurry. I mean, I've already put my foot in my mouth enough 
here in order to make me lose sleep tonight. Um, so um, people are only impressive from a distance, okay? Up, up close, they're really quite cantankerous and short-tempered and impatient and crabby and lustful and selfish and good. Grit. No more. No more. Enough. Um, that, that's one thing. And then just, just realize that what do you have that you did not receive? And, and so if, if anybody helps you, and we do want to be helpful. Conferences like this aren't for nothing. That God... God did that. Just be really radically God-centered. I would say one thing that, that is helpful, too, is to read biographies. That sometimes uh, people who have served God significantly, they become like superheroes. Uh, and then you read their biographies and you realize Spurgeon struggled mightily with depression. And you realize that uh, Luther occasionally said some things that maybe he shouldn't have. Uh, <laughs> And uh, you realize that John Calvin had somebody murdered. And you start doing your homework, and you're like, well, they were sinners saved by grace, kept by grace. And I think biography, especially autobiography, because sometimes even biographies can be written by fans who are trying to create superheroes. Like Spurgeon's four-volume four autobiography finished by his wife is just super insightful. But to me, the biographies help to put people in context and then that even allows you to relate to leaders in our present day, assuming that when the biography or the autobiography is written, it'll read similarly. Um, Many of these questions in the repentance category are fantastic. And so we're going to post these on Advance the Church notes. Um, we want to progress to our last section. So I would challenge you to go there and download these. Uh, a lot of the questions that came in today, over 100, uh, dealt with the need for prayer, really. There was underlying movement of repentance and, and conviction. And so I just wanted to finish this time with uh, you men praying for the folks here uh, in, in this conference. Uh, repentance has hit hard. Idolatry is, I think, coming to light. And so uh, I'll finish this in just a few moments, but if, if we could spend the next five minutes or so praying, let's do that. If you'll bow with us. Father, we, we come before you, not based on our own merit, but because of the gracious work of Christ on the cross. And we are struck with the deep need that we have, not just for salvation, but for the strength for living, for sanctification, for transformation, for strength to lead, for our own lives to be more reflective of the gospel, for our own lives to be models that others might reflect the gospel more fully. Father, change us. The recurring theme has been repentance. Lord, change. If we are haughty, break us. If we hold up men as heroes and idols, convict us. If we have unrepentant sin, prompt us and draw us to holiness. But Father, I pray that you would begin a movement. We've talked about it here. You would begin a great movement of God and, and in some small way, Lord, not because we gathered together, not because we, 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 we conjured it up because of our singing or our preaching or our, our, our good words to one another, but because of your gracious goodness, 
would you allow us to humble ourselves before you and then pour out your spirit afresh and anew on our lives, our families, and our churches so that you might receive the glory, so that because we are so changed that we might go to the nations, that we might go to our neighbors, and in the process, your name and your fame might be more widely known. Burden us with a heart for the nations, but cause that burden to come because we have a heart for you. As we understand you more deeply, we want to join you in your mission, Lord. Help us not to, not, not to simply go our own way, think, our, think the best things we need to have to make you happy, but instead help us to join you on your mission so that we might say, as Isaiah did, here I am, Lord, send me. Send me on mission. Send me on missions. But send me for your glory, your honor, and your sake. Father, it is your goodness that leads us to repentance. And Father, we pray that the eyes of the, our hearts would be enlightened by the Holy Spirit, that we might know the breadth and the depth of your love for us, that we might see our sin, Lord, in light of the way that it has tarnished your character, the way it has diminished your glory, sullied your glory, God, and, and see us how it has damaged us. Father, we pray that we might be able to see the magnificence of your love, your righteousness, your holiness, and your glory that was displayed in the cross, that we might have a renewed confidence in your steadfast love that never changes a new confidence in the declaration that you have made over us that we are your beloved sons and daughters and in us because we are in Christ you are well pleased and father a renewed sense a new understanding Lord of how sinful sin actually was of the great sinfulness of sin and the Muite live as those who mourn, yet are comforted by the gospel. Father, I confess how many times I have wimped out when it comes to the fear of man. Usually it's one-on-one, -on -one, not in front of a big group. It's easy to sound bold in front of a big group, but on the street, on the airplane, and in the neighborhood, how many times has the desire not to be thought weird, part of that right-wing Republican group, kept me quiet. So even though I answered the question on the fear of man, just be truth in lending here, that's a battle. Confess it long to be made more consistently bold at individual levels as well as corporate levels, church levels. And Lord, with regard to that, that first question that I probably blew off too fast, um, how, how vulnerable I feel to being judgmental about entertainment and what choices people make different from mine. And so I want to be real careful publicly vulnerable here about there's as much danger in not having a TV as having one. Whatever way you choose, the idols are different. And so God protect us 
forgive me from the times when that act of discipline has become a ground for boasting, a ground for judgment. Oh, Lord God, penetrates through our hearts to just divide good and evil, right and wrong, true and false, beautiful and ugly in ways that we didn't even know they were in our hearts. Go deep with us, Lord. Don't leave us to ourselves. We don't know ourselves. Who can know his faults? We cry out, cleanse thou me of hidden faults. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. God, as you call us to repentance, we pray that it wouldn't be counterfeit, God. Um, help us not to merely fear the consequences of sin. Um, because if we only, Lord, fear the consequences, when the consequence is gone, we've only paid, played do -si do with sin and gone from one sin to another, fooling ourselves into a repentance that we really don't have because we've changed sins. And so, God, I pray that you would give us authentic, comprehensive brokenness of um, core root issues that, um, that barricade our ability to repent. We know that repentance is a supernatural work. You can't just, by your own power, we can't just decide we're going to come out of sin. We need you to throw us some rope, God, and give us, give us the want for you again, a desire for you again, Lord God that we may turn, change our minds about the raggediness and triflingness of ourselves and our sin and turn to Jesus once again. Help it to be a comprehensive work. God, you say in your word that the prayers of righteous men are powerful and effective. And so I pray that you would cover these people, all of us here, with our prayers, prayers of righteous men, and that they would move in our lives, that you would respond, that you would hear them, and then you would do the work that only you can do, God. Let us go and be men and women of repentance, returning to Jesus and uh, finding our, our true love in him, uh, rejecting all idols in our lives. And then, God, would you give us a sense of urgency and boldness to go and proclaim Jesus to the ends of the earth. We love you, and it's in your son's name that we ask these things. Amen.